Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about drumming up some racial unrest. I think I would have to describe myself as a pretty big sports fan. I absolutely love football, both the American variety and the international variety. And the story that I want to tell today has a little bit to do with American football, American high school football. But I also love the NCAA basketball tournament, which is going on right now at this particular time that I'm recording. And uh, it kind of inspires me to say, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about sports. It's not something I've done in a while. You know, it brings to mind a couple of stories, both some good stories and some bad stories. On the good side, I'll talk about my different drummer, and we'll talk about basketball. But perhaps a negative story, or at least a curious negative story from my past, has everything to do with football at the high school level. Now, the high school that I attended was one of those schools that was a public school in every conceivable sense of the word. Uh, we weren't a magnet school. We didn't have a big advantage when it came to the suburban draw of drawing, drawing a large population shift into our area. We did have busing from other parts of town, which brought in a good racial mix to our school population. But there was nothing in the athletics of our particular high school that would lead you to believe that we were using busing in any sort of way to try to create some sort of super team. If we went out and won enough games to get to the state playoffs, it was an impressive achievement, not something that was necessarily expected of us. And that's an important distinction. Because there were two other kinds of schools in the city that we were in. One was a suburban school with a very wealthy district with a lot of good facilities that would attract people who wanted to excel in sports to move with their families into that area. So you have sort of that sort of super team that you see. And these are the kind of teams that you see uh, playing high school football on ESPN. If it's a wealthy suburban neighborhood, we were competing against a couple of those. And then there were also a couple of teams that were in what would you might have to describe, regrettably describe, as the black part of town. And they also ex excelled as well because you have a very good population base from which to draw where for a lot of those uh, kids, their academics were unlikely to get them out of their situation and into a very good college education because at the time we're talking – you know, pre any sort of affirmative action programs. So even if you were the very best and brightest student, you might have some difficulty economically, where even if you could get into the best schools around, if you could get uh, admitted or accepted into, you know, Stanford or Northwestern or the Ivy League, you probably couldn't afford it. So the best way for somebody to get the best education and sort of secure a different path for their future was athletics. And so you had a couple of schools on that kind of side of town that were uh, excellent at athletics for other reasons, you know, for more um, socioeconomic reasons, perhaps even. And we were smack dab in the middle, somewhat geographically, but definitely on the spectrum, we were in the middle. And so I felt like when our school was doing well enough in athletics that we were competitive, that we had a chance to, to win our little um, high school league, get into the state playoffs, maybe, you know, win a game, go on the road for another game. Those kind of things were a significant achievement. And it was my senior year in high school when we were at one of those moments. We needed to win one more game. And we would, maybe we wouldn't have won the league we were in outright, but we would have tied it. We definitely would have gotten ourselves into the playoffs. So this victory was probably the single most important high school football game that I 
that I witnessed. Now, I was not a football player in high school. I only played, uh, if you can put quote marks around the word played, in elementary school. And then even then it was primarily flag football that I was playing. But very much a student of the game. To some degrees, at times almost a historian of the game, loved the sport, can speak chapter and verse about it, and was very, very into it. And the way I personally participated in the event that is Friday Night Lights High School Football was in the drum section of the marching band. So uh, judge that however you might. Uh, for some people, being in the marching band is something that, that you know is a problem they have to overcome. There's a nerd hurdle there to refer to uh, to the Jacob and Mandy show on Simply Syndicated called Nerd Hurdles. But for me, I, I took a tremendous amount of pride. There's all kinds of evidence that suggests that um, having an interest in music and developing some skill in music is really a fairly good indicator of the kind of disciplines that you'll need to succeed later in life. Uh, for some, there's a connection between the ability to connect with music in a real way and to grasp the kind of more abstract and complex topics, which can lead to a really good understanding of some very difficult subject matter. And a lot of my friends who are in that same drum section with me and in the band with me have gone on to have some great great success, running very successful companies, you know, in difficult fields of study. So I think that there's something to it. At least my personal experience says that um, music is a good route to go, both academically and socially, because it was also a very good, very fun social group. In my position, I was one of the co-drum section leaders, me and a very good friend of mine. He was the first chair lead snare drum. So when you think of what a drum sounds like in a marching band perspective, it's, it's his voice you're hearing. It's his stick work that you're, you're thinking of in your mind. For me, I played the kind of the opposite end. I played the, what we called the triple toms. Um, nowadays, when you look at a high school marching band, you tend to see four drums, and they're not as big. But back then, and maybe this was just the, the evolution of the technology or where my high school's budget was, but back then I had three drums, and they were – fairly substantial in size. The one in front of me was roughly the size of the tenor drum that I first learned how to play when I started in the marching band. And then I had two on either side that were actually um, much bigger and only very slightly um, smaller. So I had, you know, kind of a, a three-tiered kind of approach. And I think the, the whole drum thing was probably 35, 40 pounds because the size of the drums. And again, instead of being just sort of a drum head on a mount like you kind of see today, these were actual, you know, entire drums. Like you were going to like the drum kit of a rock band and taking two or three of their drums off and just mounting them on an apparatus that you can strap around somebody's back. So I'm usually carrying those up and down the halls. We prided ourselves on having very elaborate, very entertaining drum cadences. They were the kinds of drum cadences that had a move to them and a groove to them. So if all you wanted was something to sort of, you know, a driving sound, you got it. They were, uh, yeah, most of them you could march to. Some of them were too complex to play and march at the same time, or, or even to try to march to, because they weren't necessarily all kind of a 4-4 four, four rhythm. But if you were a drummer, if you understood cadences, and we were playing at our best, uh, this was interesting to listen to from just a musical perspective, because there was a certain degree of complexity to it. They were challenging. Uh, there was not a single drum rudiment that wasn't at some point incorporated into one of those, you know, dozen-plus cadences that we would play. And so we took a lot of pride in that. In fact, sometimes in, you know, you know, think of high school and sort of the high school attitude, we would learn, in some cases, the cadences of our opposition to where if you'd be, you know, um, their marching band would be in the stands playing and typically drums playing most of the time. 
on the opposite side of the stands. We would be on our side of the stands. And from time to time, we would actually break into playing their cadence just to sort of to show that yeah, we've got yours. Do you have ours? And of course, I don't think, to my knowledge, I don't think anybody ever did. Uh, we would literally take brand new incoming freshmen and sophomores and spend two solid weeks just getting them to where they could play the music, not so much even having it learned or memorized. The first step was saying, First, you need to understand enough rudiments to play this. Second, you have to be able to play this at the pace that we march to. And then let's worry about whether or not you can memorize it to where we can call a number and just play that tune. So that's you know, sort of giving you perhaps the, again, the geek factor really, really high here. We were intense. We're into it and kind of felt like we had a connection to what was going on, that there was no pep rally we didn't play at. There was no game we didn't go to, including getting on a bus and riding a, you know, an hour or so across to the other side of the state to, to play for visiting games that were more of significant away games from a travel perspective. On this particular Friday morning, though, it was the morning before that big game. Last game or next to the last game of our regular season and a must-win game. If we win it, we're going to the playoffs. If we lose it, we're not going to the playoffs. And again, we were a good football team. And not only did I like the players, like the balance, it's worth mentioning that a lot of what you're going to see in high school athletics and college athletics is racial harmony and racial balance in a way that the rest of American society still has not quite gotten right. That you've got people from different cultures, different experiences, side by side, calling each other's teammates and teammates in the, you know, in the most direct sense of the word. And getting together to accomplish something and to pick each other up when those accomplishments fall short. Plus we had some key players. We had players on our team who went on to be stars in college, um, have an NFL career, you know, win Super Bowls. Now, no, not in a starring role. So I'm not dropping any names here. I won't drop a name at all. In fact, but if I did, I wouldn't expect that it would be a name that everyone would say, Oh, him. Wow. But uh, nevertheless, somebody qualified to be on an NFL roster and make contributions to a Super Bowl winning season for a team. So we had that kind of you know, quality on the team as well. So you got that blend of, of uh, regular, ordinary guys teaming together to achieve more than they're capable of, and a couple of superstars, and, and you're on the road. You can compete against a magnet school that can literally attract any student they want from any corner of the county, not just their own school district, and create a super team. And that's who we were up against. We were up against the magnet school. The super team, the defending league titleist, the favorite to go far in the state playoffs. And we, I don't think we're capable of knocking them out of the playoffs. We were only capable of, you know, getting a piece of the action and earning our way in ourselves. Maybe making their playoff run harder because instead of being the very top seed, they might have had a middle seed in the high school tournament. But we would have been in that middle seed as well if we could have pulled this victory off. So the pep rally that morning was scheduled to start with the five-minute bell. And what I mean by the five-minute bell is five minutes before classes began. Let's call it 8 o'clock. I'm not sure what the time was. It's too many years. But say 5 till 8, the bell rings. At that moment, we were supposed to leave the, the music room and play drum cadences and have the band march with instruments down the halls to the athletic building, to the field house. We're kind of in the basketball court area. We were going to have a huge pep rally. Cheerleaders are waiting. Football team's waiting. The stands are full of students because, you know, it's, it's a regular school day. And the first, you know, maybe 15 minutes of that school day, we're going to play the school fight song. We're going to do some cheering. We're going to hear some motivational speeches. We're going to encourage everyone to come out to the game tonight because it was the most important high school football game I ever attended as a fan, or in this case, as a band member. Now, the end of the story is we didn't win that game. 
We played well, maybe well enough to win, didn't pull it off, didn't go to the playoffs. So this ended up, at the time you didn't know, but this ended up kind of being the last thing, the end of the road. But nevertheless, we were all looking forward to it because it was either going to be the last regular season pep rally or the last pep rally of all. So I'm playing my drums. We're calling out numbers. We're, we're in a great groove. We had the full drum section with us. Maybe not everybody from the band was there for that you know, preschool or 8 o'clock a.m. event, but it was, the band was in good form as well. And I'm marching down through the uh, unair conditioned part of our building, the old part of the school, into the new part of the school. And we're about to turn a corner and get pretty close to where we're going to you know, kind of have the field house in sight. When all of a sudden I feel something from behind me. Somebody has grabbed me, grabbed me forcefully enough to sort of throw me off my balance, not pick me up off my feet, but throw me off my balance, shove me up against a wall and screaming at me. I can't hear him. I got drummers all around, cymbal players crashing. I'm playing drums myself. Of course, now I've stopped. I can't hear what he's saying, but he's yelling at me. He's angry at me and he's raised a fist toward me. So I move in such a way to to dodge the fist because my number one attitude when it comes to conflict, especially physically violent conflict, is prevention. I mean, if I can avoid the conflict, if I can avoid punching somebody, I will. If I can avoid getting punched, of course, I'll do that too. So in this case, I dodged what either was or could have been a punch, basically shrugged the person off. Because again, I got 35 pounds of drums or 40 pounds of drums on me. I've got a formidable weapon strapped to my chest. I'm going to be a hard person to take down. I shrugged the person off and I just kind of moved faster and caught up to my group. And a couple of people, you know, I mean, I'm the drum section leader, right? Me and my other drum section leader, we're seeing what's going on. And so are a lot of other people because a lot of folks, um, even when marching, kind of keeping an eye on what we're doing out of the corner of our eye, because what we do with our cadences may signal that they're supposed to play something. We might be playing the fight song while marching up and down the aisles. Now, I'll grant you that marching up and down the aisles with a band with, you know, nine, ten drums or, you know, a ten person unit with cymbals, drums and all that. That's pretty loud. So we're going to make a noise. We're going to make an impression. So I couldn't imagine that there was anything that I'd done to generate this kind of anger. And at that moment in time, I was just, if nothing more, I was confused. But I wasn't confused enough or curious enough to pursue the answer to the question, what in the world was this guy so mad about? All I remembered at that point in time was that it was a teacher, that his behavior struck me as being incredibly inappropriate, and that I didn't care because the most important thing right then was playing in that pep rally and getting ready for that football game that night. That was what I wanted to do. So after the pep rally was over, didn't, we didn't march back because by that time, by the time we got back to the music room, took off our instruments and all that, other people would have already been inside class. You'd have left the homeroom period and you would have actually had people in real classroom situations. So we, we're quiet about it, quiet as you can be as a, as a high school kid, I guess, um, carrying a load of drums. And I thought, you know, before I go to class, I probably better say something. And before I could even pull the band director aside, my friend from the drum section pulled me aside and said, what was that about? What, what did you do? I said, I don't think I did anything. I don't, I don't know what it was about. I just realized that at some point somebody was going to take a shot at me and I needed to get out of that situation, but it all happened from behind. So whatever I'd done was behind me. I didn't, I didn't know it. It wasn't intentional, of course. And it was all things that happened um, with, you know, behind my back, literally behind my back. And he agreed with me. We probably better say something. And my approach with the band director was, you know, it, maybe it's hard to believe, but again, my focus was 100% on not doing anything to mess up 
my focus on the game that night or to provide any sort of distraction for the school. I didn't want anything to mess up the game that night. I'm a football fan. I'm a huge football fan. So what I told the band director was, listen, this is not a big deal. Nothing happened. No, no, no harm, no foul. I don't really care because my attitude was that you know, people would get mad at me all the time. I just, you know, from time to time would do things that would just rub people the wrong way. And why not a teacher? I'm sure I aggravated more teachers than I knew, truth be known. And if nothing else came from this, if this incident stopped right there, if I made somebody mad, they expressed their anger inappropriately and it ended there, I was good with it. So I wasn't raising the complaint because I wanted something done. And I made that pretty clear to the band director. Hey, something happened. If you hear about it, I don't think it was a big deal. I'm not hurt. The teacher or whoever this other person was wasn't hurt. I know I didn't do anything. At least if I did something, I didn't do it on purpose. So whatever he was mad about probably was just a misunderstanding. But just so you'll know, if it comes up in a staff conversation, if, if the principal asks questions, yeah, something happened, but I don't think it was a big deal. And, th- and I left it at that. I spent the rest of my day just doing whatever I would normally do in classes, just going to class, uh, maybe participating a lot, maybe not participating at all. I kind of was, you know, ditch to ditch as far as that goes. And at lunchtime, I lived across the street from the school. So there's both a big disadvantage and a big advantage in having a house right across the street from your high school. Now, having a house right across the street from your elementary school or your junior high school, that might not be much of a plus either way. I mean, you can avoid busing that way, and um, you don't have a long walk home, and you pretty much have a huge field. You have a big soccer field, baseball field like that available to you if you live that close to your elementary school or your junior high school. But in high school, it was a really big advantage because we had an open campus. It was totally acceptable for a student during the lunch hour to leave the high school campus and eat somewhere else. There were convenience stores, fast food locations, not too far away, you know, probably in in retrospect as a parent, probably way too far away. You know, in a 30-minute lunch hour, we were probably driving a little bit too fast and a little bit too carelessly to make sure that we could drive through at Wendy's or McDonald's and get back. So there were some things there that I don't think were ideal. But for me, it was perfect. I lived right across the street from the school. For me, uh, leaving the school for lunch was faster than any other option, probably faster than waiting in line at the high school cafeteria would have been for a set of food choices that may not have been as varied, but where I had complete control because it was, after all, my food, my kitchen. The other thing I liked about being right across the street from the from the high school was that I'm not a big fan of using the restroom publicly. There's no real choice about public restrooms. If you If you need one and can't find one, it's the biggest problem you could probably have on that particular day. But when you think about it, the longer I'm going to spend in the restroom, the more business I'm going to do there, the more I'd rather be at home. I've got a saying that I use with friends say, you know, the king, whenever possible, the king should issue all edicts from his own throne room. And that's my perspective. If I've got real business to do, I'd rather do it at home. And one time I actually got in trouble a couple of years before this event because I um, told the teacher that my first hour class I needed to use the restroom, got a hall pass to leave the classroom and go to the restroom. And instead of going to the restroom, I went downstairs, walked outside, walked across the street, used, used the restroom in my own home. In this particular instance, he happened to catch that maneuver or someone tipped him off that a student was walking across the parking lot and leaving, leaving the building at like 8.30 or 9 in the morning. And uh, he called me and I said, well, you know, the bottom line is I did use the restroom. I just, you know, I used the restroom from my, I used the restroom from my own throne room. Thank you very much. Uh, I was told never to do that again. But in this case, at lunchtime, you know, this day of the pep rally, day of the big football game, 
I decided that the right thing for me to do was to to eat at home. And I don't know what I don't know what led me to that. I was fairly random about these things. I'm not the kind of person to plan out all my lunches a week in advance. In this case, it just seemed like the best thing to do was just to grab a sandwich. I wanted maybe I wanted some time away from everybody. There wasn't any talk. Uh, the whole thing from the pep rally had just been business as usual. Nobody had, um, who had eyewitnessed the event had come to see me about it. For me, it was all forgotten. But apparently, not for my mother. When I went home for lunch that day, I was a bit surprised that my mom was even there. She often worked, and the hours and days that she worked were not really predictable. Um, she worked uh, as a nurse, and at times she was uh, assigned to a nursing home where she had, you know, probably fairly regular set of hours and a regular routine. But at other times, she had sort of a visiting nurse role. She spent some time as a cancer nurse, uh, teaching people how to do breast self-examination and doing other sort of cancer outreach, cancer education. So you just never really, if I, you know, one of the advantages I think she had over me as a kid was anything I was going to do to sort of, you know, misbehave, skip school, uh, store beer in the fridge, thinking I, I could definitely drink the beer right after school, mom wouldn't be home, didn't work because you never knew when she was going to be home. But on this occasion, she was home. And the second I got in the door during that lunch hour, she confronted me immediately. Is there something you wanted to tell me about school this morning, young man? I mean, it was the kind of young man sort of full name, middle name included kind of a, a tone of voice that said, whoa, what have I done? I mean, you get the drift. And I was panicked. Did I skip a class? Did I miss a quiz? You know, what happened? And then I realized that she must have heard about the math teacher. Now, in the time between eight o'clock in the morning, marching down the halls and, you know, lunchtime, I had had time in my head to sort of piece together kind of what happened. And what had happened was, as I had marched past this classroom, this math teacher must have been doing something in the classroom that he found the drum music to be incredibly disruptive about. And that he was mad, um, not really at me in my mind, he was mad at the band director, mad at the high school athletic director, mad at the principal, because at five minutes to late, when theoretically nobody should be taking a preschool test anymore. If you're doing a makeup test, that, that five-minute bell says test is over. But at five minutes till eight, he had something going on in his classroom that he didn't appreciate the noise disrupting. So I thought, wow, let me think about this. <clears throat> if she's heard about the math teacher, well, that's how I described him. I described him when my mom said, so what happened? Did, you, did the school call you about the thing that happened with the math teacher? To be honest, I can't recall the man's name. It wasn't important enough to me, you know, as I've said, for me to put his name into memory. But, you know, so I called the math teacher and she asked me what happened. She wasn't giving me any hint as to what the school had called her because apparently the principal or the assistant principal, somebody had called her to tell her that I'd done, the implication was to call her to tell her that I'd done something wrong. So I said, well, you know, and he shoved me up against a wall tried to take my mallets out of my hands, and was clearly going to you know, take a swing at me. He had raised a fist toward me. I also told her something that I got the impression she hadn't heard from the principal, that I simply pulled away from him, kind of used my hips and my drums to keep him away from me, and kept on marching. With the drum strapped to my belly, he couldn't get to me, and to me, that was the end of the story. So what did the school tell my mother? The school called my mom to tell her that I was in danger of being suspended or potentially even expelled for perpetuating racial unrest at the high school. That's right. They told her that it was a racial incident. So my mom asked me directly if the teacher was a minority. I stopped for a moment, completely perplexed, honestly, completely perplexed, and said, yeah, he was. Although 
I had never really considered that particular question before. To me, he was a teacher, I was a student, I was doing what the school told me to do, and he was doing something that was probably not consistent with what the school's instructions for him were to do. That between five minutes till eight and eight o'clock, he was not supposed to have a group of students in his classroom completing some sort of work that was ultimately going to prevent them from getting to their homeroom. He may have thought, well, in this case, homeroom is just a pep rally. Pep rally is not as important as this makeup test. I'm going to make these students late to the pep rally because it's for their own good. And obviously, the music that I was playing was interfering with his strategy. But truly, I had never once considered him as anything more than the math teacher who was mad at me because I was disrupting a makeup test. He was never, in my mind, a black math teacher. So my mom ended up having to join me in the principal's office later that afternoon to testify that none of my actions were racially motivated. And the key evidence for her was that during the lunch hour, when she confronted me about the race of the teacher, the race of the teacher had never even occurred to me. For me, it was very, very simple. A teacher took a swing at me. Why? I was disturbing his students. But my reply was that I was following the orders of another teacher, the band director, and doing what I thought was right, and doing something that I thought was going to benefit the entire school. Because if you're going to have a pep rally, you might as well do it right. Nerd Hurdles, where every week, Jacob and Mandy will help you navigate the labyrinth of nerddom. Don't be afraid. But you will be. No, you won't. You will be. Nerd. This is simplysyndicated.com. I don't know if this story has any bigger overarching theme, because, you know, to me, at the end of the day, it's just a story. It's just a true, factual story, somewhat interesting, somewhat entertaining. If there is something to it, if there is some more, you know, compelling question behind it, It's, in my mind, was I doing the right thing by somehow only at at a subconscious level or some sort of a memory level being aware of the man's race? Was my racial indifference fulfilling everything that at the time Ronald Reagan was describing as the America that he wanted to see, an America that was colorblind? Or was my indifference in and of itself semi-confrontational, somehow not, not viewing that as an important aspect of this particular conflict? And I don't want to say that I don't have an opinion here, because I do. I have a fairly strong opinion here, having experienced all these things firsthand. But I'm open-minded enough to say, you know what, I'm not 100% sure that being indifferent to this teacher's race was the, the right thing to do. I wouldn't preach it, in other words, that that's what everyone else should do. But I would say that from my perspective, I don't think bringing race into it was was appropriate at all. If the teacher himself had done that, then shame on him. Because... I don't have to interact with you as another human being based on the color of your skin. I need to interact with you as another human being based on our relationship to each other, which in this case was teacher and student. But more likely, in my mind, this was probably something that the politicos had done, that the principal or the vice principal or the school board had done, that any time there was going to be any sort of conflict, especially a potentially physically violent conflict, where two different races were involved in a school that has a lot of busing, you know, that, that wasn't 50-50 by any stretch of the imagination, but had a racial mix to it, that the first assumption was going to be that if that kind of conflict happens, it's going to be racial. And I'm wondering if the same kind of conflict had happened between me and an elderly white teacher, an elderly white female teacher, would I be accused of creating gerontological unrest at the school? Would it be a sexist thing? 
in some manner? Or do we as a society immediately assume that race is an issue in ways that we never would if the same actions were to take place where the difference between the two people, aside from their relationship of teacher and student, was more about an age difference, maybe even a significant multi-generational age difference, or about gender instead? For me, I don't view that story as an embarrassing story from my past. I'm not particularly proud of it either because I was just a, just a character and events that were beyond my control. But I'm certainly not ashamed of it because I'm, in my mind, I'm hoping I modeled the correct behavior. I didn't judge the man based on anything other than his actions. And I didn't blow his actions out of proportion. And I didn't attach any meaning to his actions beyond what the meaning was truly at its lowest common denominator likely to be. This wasn't a black man striking out at a white kid. This was a teacher upset because a student was making noise in the hall. And I think his part of the conversation that we had ultimately, when me, my mom, the teacher, the principal all got together right after the final bell of school that day, was that I was making so much noise that he didn't hear the final bell. But I don't think that was true. Because I don't believe that we left the music room to head toward the field house until the final bell had already rung. I wonder, though, if in today's society, we wouldn't have a different response to this situation. If my family somehow didn't measure up to what Americans tend to be about, wouldn't that same kind of thing in a fairly white neighborhood of a fairly wealthy, old wealthy part of town, not the new wealthy part of town, would it have turned into a lawsuit where I would have been able to vent my rage at being accused of being racist when I'm not? Because to be fair, there was some anger about being accused of being racist when I was not. In other words, are we better today because we don't let these things go? Or were we better decades ago because my initial response was to say, no, let's let this go. Let's not pour anything more into it than needs to be there. Because I understood, perhaps maybe just as a member of the band, maybe because of the way I was you know, uh, living my life as a student or as a Christian student, maybe I was seeing Seeing that fish out of water thing and having a little bit more sympathy to it, what does it feel like to be a creature from another planet? I guess I'd say I haven't just recently come into this idea of being a creature from another planet in many ways. I've had this notion of being a creature from another planet for a very, very long time. Not quite as long as I can remember, but you know, way back before high school. So in some ways, I think I had some sympathy for what it might mean to be you know, a minority teacher Maybe he was just as caught up in the hubbub as I was. Maybe he was just as resentful of the idea that some powers that be above him were reinterpreting a very simple, very quick event as an incident of racial unrest. It simply wasn't the case. So that's a story that I would ironically refer to as drumming up a racial incident. Nothing could be further from the truth, except for the fact that I was drumming, and there was an incident, and the two people involved happened to be of different races. The fact of the matter is, I don't think my race had anything to do with his angry reaction, and I know that his race had nothing to do with my responses going forward. Isn't that a model we should pursue? Our different drummer today also qualifies as a legitimate fish out of water, Jim Valvano. And I'm going to refer to Valvano primarily for a couple of events, one in 1983 and another in 1993. But first, a little bit of biographical groundwork. Valvano was born just after World War II 
in Queens, New York. And if you've ever heard him speak, or if you've ever even really seen a picture, it's not hard to imagine him as being a New Yorker in every sense of the word. Um, his experience in uh, college as a player was in Rutgers University, which is in New Jersey, and his experience in the early part of his coaching career was all what we might describe as um, mid-Atlantic or northeastern, uh, states like Maryland and Pennsylvania and New York. And so when he moved to North Carolina State, he was genuinely a fish out of water. If you look at a map of the United States and sort of draw a line between Baltimore, Maryland, which was the furthest southern school that he had been a head coach at, and Raleigh, North Carolina, you're going to be surprised, perhaps, at how close those two cities are to each other, that there's not a huge number of miles, at least not from a North American perspective, not a huge number of miles between those two schools and those two cultures. But believe me, there is definitely a world of difference between those two places in, in, in time. And when Jim Valvano showed up on the campus of North Carolina State, I think one of the first thoughts he had is, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> he was literally now a Yankee in the North Carolina State Wolfpack. Now, North Carolina State basketball was not without significant moments in history. In the mid-1970s, when UCLA was king, and when um, they had set a standard that I don't think we're going to see repeated for a long, long time of consecutive national titles by the same school, it was North Carolina State that interrupted this during the uh, you know the height of David Thompson's career, uh, who would later go on to become an important uh, professional basketball player as well. But that, those times had since come and gone. North Carolina State was uh, now, in my opinion, a very average or mediocre team when Jim Valvano showed up. Now Valvano, as coach, started off in his very first year with only a four and ten record in conference play near the very bottom of the Atlantic Coast Conference. And during this period of time, the Atlantic Coast Conference was, in my opinion. Uh, the very best basketball conference out there. Now, that's some bias. But the Pac-10, where UCLA had done all of its great work, was extremely top-heavy. And a lot of the other strong schools out there were either from very small conferences or what we might have considered to be major independents at the time. Schools like the you know the Louis, Louisville Cardinals and the Memphis State Tigers were not necessarily teams that you would have associated being part of a very strong basketball conference. And during the period that I'm talking about, even the strength of the Southwest Conference with teams like Arkansas and Houston having so much success, uh, they were still viewed as being kind of top-heavy from a basketball perspective. Notre Dame was also very good back during this era, and they were definitely completely a major independent, not part of uh, the Big East for basketball, as we might call their, uh, their conference alignment today. It didn't take long for Valvano to turn things around, though, part of it because I think he had a great stable of players to work with. He just needed to turn the corner with those players, and a lot of what he tried to do initially with them was to increase their sense of self-belief and their confidence and trust with each other. Now, that wasn't necessarily a hard thing in the guard position. But it probably took a little bit of doing from a total team perspective and among the, the taller, you know, bigger forwards and centers because his two guards had played together all the way back in high school. So they had a lot of experience and a pretty good idea of what each other would do and could do on the basketball court. It just became a question of trying to turn to build a team around the skills of Sidney Lowe and Derek Wittenberg in those positions. In his second year, uh, Valvano got his team to the NCAA basketball tournament, where they only made it to the first round. But they'd gone from a 14-3 and overall record to a 22-10 and overall record, and seemed like they had righted the ship, finishing right in the middle, squarely fourth place of the ACC. During the rest of his tenure, they would have some pretty good ups. Uh, even in the years where things were down, he at least made it to the National Invitational Tournament, the second tournament, not the big 
not the one where you can win a national title, but still a tournament that you go to uh, as an acknowledgement that you had a great season. He went to the NCAA March Madness all the rest of those years and did fairly well and included a couple of first place finishes and a second place finish in the ACC along the way. Valvano was a champion of the three-point shot. He was very willing to commit fouls on purpose to extend the length of the game and to force teams to quote-unquote beat him at the free throw line and his teams played good scrappy defense but he never seemed to have the kind of depth that the big schools did even in these years when they were phenomenally successful i never got the sense that north carolina state would be able to substitute three or four guys at once without a significant drop in the level of performance on the court where they were competing at the time with schools who either had even better players at the key positions, North Carolina had Michael Jordan, for example, or Ralph Sampson playing for Virginia. These are conference foes for them as well. Uh, Maryland had a great deal of depth. And, you know, just to use their arch rival and, you know, the North Carolina Tar Heels, you just got the impression that the second team of North Carolina would have very little trouble dealing with the second team of almost anyone else in the Atlantic Coast Conference. And North Carolina State certainly didn't have that kind of depth. The year I want to talk about, though, of course, is 1982 and 1983. And I personally feel that it's the greatest, the greatest tournament that I've seen in March Madness, and the one that we refer to back today when you see a team like Butler get to the NCAA Finals last year, and at the time I'm recording, they're still alive right now. Or when you see Villanova pull off a David and Goliath-type upset of Georgetown just a few years after Jim Valvano did it first with North Carolina State, it's always the 1983 NCAA tournament that you hear the reference to where North Carolina State beat what might have been either the greatest or among the greatest college basketball programs to not win a national title during an era of incredible dominance. I'm referring, of course, to Houston University, the Cougars, and their Phi Slamma Jamma, where names that we know if you follow basketball even casually, Hakeem Olajuwon, Clyde Drexler, Larry Mishaw. This was a front line that was as formidable as any front line that had ever been assembled, and they were more likely to score with layups and slam dunks than with outside shots, but they had a trio of very capable outside shooters as well. This was a complete basketball team, and one that most people felt was going to have a fast track toward the championship game, where the only risk facing them was, what if they got into the Final Four and had to deal with one of the other really strong teams? Strong teams like Virginia, where Ralph Sampson had a height advantage over anyone else, and the skills of what you might call a much smaller player. What if they had to deal with North Carolina and a Michael Jordan that we were still trying to figure out how good he was? Good as he was back then, he would become much, much greater. What if they had to deal with Keith Lee or Baskerville Holmes of Memphis State? Since that didn't happen, since it ended up that the, the championship game was going to be between Houston and North Carolina State, a lot of people had predicted that North Carolina State was just going to get walked on, that the three-point shot that was experimented with inside the Atlantic Coast Conference wasn't available to NC State, so their lights-out guard shooting from uh, Lowe and Wittenberg wouldn't be able to help them. Each one of those baskets would be just worth just as much as a five-slamma jam would have been. My experience with North Carolina State, though, goes all the way back to January of that year. Before January, I don't think I was aware of Jim Valvano. I hadn't seen North Carolina State on TV that much because at the time that I saw them play uh, against Memphis on a weekend game on, you know, nationally televised weekend game, they were barely above 500. Their loss in that game would put them in danger of not being able to qualify for any postseason tournament, March Madness or the NIT. And in that day, they did lose, but they played incredibly well. So they're going into a game against Memphis. So you've got Keith Lee, one of the best basketball players of the year. You've got this undersized, perhaps an undermanned North Carolina State team. But playing as a team 
and beginning to turn the corner and get themselves healthy. And they lost the game by four points against a team that most pundits would have thought could have blown them completely out of the field house. I remember turning to my friends at the dormitory at that point in time and saying, this North Carolina State basketball team is going to win the national championship. I know this sounds like bragging, so I'll say it again. In January of that year, 1983, I made the call. After seeing North Carolina State lose to a team that, for anybody who saw the game, was the better basketball team that day, and saying, not only are they going to right the ship, they're going to get healthy, they are going to go on a roll, and they're going to win the NCAA basketball championship. If they face Memphis again, they'll beat them. If they have to deal with Louisville or North Carolina, they'll beat them. And the consensus from my friends was, this team's not even going to the NCAA basketball tournament because there's no way they're even going to get out of their own ACC tournament. Now, back then, the, the NCAAs had 48 teams in them, not the, the greater number, the 20 more we see today. Back then, to get into the NCAA basketball tournament, a team like North Carolina State, who's, you know, eight and six halfway through the year, they were going to have to win their conference. So they're going to have to go in against powerhouse teams like Maryland, North Carolina. Duke wasn't quite as strong at that point in time, but they were no they were no pushover. Virginia with Othell Wilson and Ralph Sims, they're going to have to win those games just to get into the NCAA tournament. And when they get into the tournament, they're going to be a middle seed. They're not going to have a first round bye. They're going to have to play against somebody in the very first round. And that's exactly what happened. Jim Valvano's motivational ability, his X's and O's, but also, his enthusiasm, his love for life, his love for his team inspired those guys to go on an unbelievable roll. After that Memphis State game, they went on to win 18 of their next 22. Their average margin of victory in the last nine games they played, the postseason games, both the ACC tournament and the national uh, college tournament, was 2.67. They're winning games by what would have been less than a three-point shot if the three-point shot had been valid for NCAA postseason play at that time. Either way, their margin of victory was more or less a made basket or a little bit, you know, made basket with a free throw after it. Close enough, right? This made for incredible TV viewing. Watching North Carolina State play basketball this time would have been inspirational, even if Jim Valvano himself hadn't been an inspirational figure. But the bottom line is, Valvano was a funny guy. If you see the end of the national title game, where they unexpectedly played David in defeating the Goliath that was the Houston Cougars, you see the image of Valvano running up and down the court trying to find somebody to, to hug or give a high five to because his players were all celebrating with you know kind of themselves underneath the basket. He had that kind of love for the game. As all things do in coaching, seemingly, he was later asked to leave the university. This after uh, several years in a row of getting his team into the Elite Eight or the Sweet 16. You know, not just getting to the NCAA tournament, but qualifying and moving forward in the NCAA tournament. And he wrote a book, an autobiography, not long after he made the transition from coach to broadcaster. And that book had the comical title, They Gave Me a Lifetime Contract, and Then They Declared Me Dead. That was published in 1991. You meet people all the time who will tell you that it doesn't make any sense to be a sports fan of a team that you're not close to, that sports fandom should always be local. But every now and then there is a team that comes along, like this North Carolina State squad, who can capture your imagination. I don't know why, from watching a game that they played on national TV and lost, and didn't necessarily look that good losing, I don't know what you know inspired me to say, this is a team I'm going to follow. I believe that these guys can finish getting healthy and stay healthy and play more together than they had in the first part of the year, play like they played in that losing effort, that they can win it all. 
But for whatever reason, that's the connection that I made with them. And that connection made me want to see everything that they did. That, of course, brought me into awareness of who Jim Valvano was. And Jim Valvano is nothing else. It's one of the greatest motivational speakers from the realm of sports. Now, there's going to be better motivational speakers, more interesting, more intelligent, more worthwhile people to take a motivational talk from than Valvano. But of all the sports figures, of all the coaches, ex-coaches, ex-players, if I was going to listen to another speech from another sports person, I believe it would be Jim Valvano. And part of the reason I feel so strongly about that is what would happen between the late 80s and 1993. And I'm going to make a specific reference to 1993 and something that if you've never seen before, I strongly urge you to go to YouTube and track this down. It is worth 10 or 11 minutes of your time. The YouTube clip I'm looking at right now was posted by a YouTube member called Speech Club. And the title of it is Jim Valvano's 1993 ESPY speech. His speech for what I think was the inaugural version of the ESPY Awards. And it's give or take exactly 10 minutes long. It is more or less the entire speech. And again, this is a man who is receiving a humanitarian award for his efforts to raise awareness and money for cancer research and for a lot of other things that his Jimmy V Foundation was doing. But at the same time, he's also, you can tell, or certainly in retrospect, saying goodbye. Valvano was diagnosed with bone cancer in June of 1992, and it didn't take very long for it to spread. Less than two months before his death, he spoke at the, that ESPY Award telecast on March 4th of 1993, accepting the Arthur Ashe College and Humanitarian Award. This is another example, again, of, of a white New Yorker <laughs> living as a fish out of water in the American South, receiving an award in the name of a black athlete who was himself a great humanitarian. So this all sort of brings together in this sort of mix of how we're all in this together and how we're all working together. Because the first thing Jimmy V says in that speech is, it's humbling to even be mentioned in, in the same sentence with Arthur Ashe, much less getting a humanitarian award in his name. Because I think Valvano probably realized that for the bulk of his lifetime, he had not done the sort of things that Arthur Ashe had been doing, you know, in the bulk of his lifetime. And that it maybe the difference was that Valvano had an opportunity, an opportunity he sees with both hands, to continue making a humanitarian difference after his death. And he sees that moment. His uh, Jimmy V Foundation motto would be, don't give up, don't ever give up. And of course, that was going to be a part of his speech. A couple of things about his speech that I'd like to say. First, six minutes in, he makes, he stops for a minute and comments on the teleprompter, putting something up there that says he has 30 seconds left. He starts off his speech by saying, hey, you know what? I don't have any guarantee I'm going to be around to, to talk with you guys again. I'm going to seize this opportunity. So this is not going to be like any other speech you've heard in this particular awards telecast. But he looked at the teleprompter and somebody's saying, hey, you've got 30 seconds, wrap it up. And he says, you know, they got that screen up there flashing 30 seconds like I care about that screen. I got tumors all over my body and I'm worried about some guy in the back going, it's 30 seconds. And there he carried on for almost another five minutes. After that, his message, things that you need to do every day as a human being, laugh, spend some time in thought and find, allow yourself to be emotionally connected to tears, whether it's tears of joy or tears of sorrow, but connect emotionally. This is a direct quote. Think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. You do that seven days a week and you are going to have something special. My opinion about Jim Valvano 
is that even if you are the arch enemy of North Carolina State, and the funny thing is that North Carolina State basketball, you, do you really have an arch enemy? Uh, North Carolina and Duke are so obsessed with each other that these three schools, which are basically a half-hour round trip if you decide to do a tour of the three of them, they're that close together in this Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill you know, corner of North Carolina, um, so distracted with each other that North Carolina State has almost always been the other team in that triangle. But even if you did have some axe to grind, I defy anybody to take a look at the way Jim Valvano finished the end of his life and take any issue with anything that happened along the way before. Can anything in his recruiting of Chris Washburn, you know, questions about whether or not uh, he was graduating his players, or he was doing everything he should have as a coach to encourage his players to get the educational opportunity that a college scholarship would offer them. Uh, the number of his players that actually were unable to succeed at the NBA level because he didn't feel that as a college coach he was a farm team for the NBA, that he was putting together college team where his college kids who many of which would never play in the National Basketball Association were capable of standing toe to toe with people who would become NBA all-stars who'd make themselves onto the list of the 50 greatest NBA players of all time could stand toe to toe with them and win and a lot of it had to do with his notion that you need to be confident you need to have enthusiasm you need to care deeply about one another but you also need to have fun along the way and that a lot of your success not just in sports but certainly in life has to do with the quality of your thought it is so easy for us to dismiss athletes and coaches as being anti-intellectual or in some manner unintelligent I defy anybody to watch that 1993 television clip of the ESPY Awards on YouTube or anywhere else you can find it and come away with anything other than the notion that you maybe don't have to be the brightest person in the room. If you love that deeply and care that much, it can make a huge difference. David doesn't beat Goliath because he's stronger than him. He doesn't even always beat Goliath because he can outsmart him. A lot of times, David beats Goliath because he has more heart. That, probably better than anything else, describes Jim Valvano as a different drummer. It's a fairly rare occasion on these inappropriate conversations that I'm going to dip into sports. When I do so, I think what you're going to find is that I'm doing so from a level of incredible passion, that I do enjoy sports, and I think that more is going on in sports than just the X's and O's, or certainly more is going on than what the scoreboard, the final scoreboard has to say. But I understand there's a lot of people who don't necessarily have the same esteem, that they feel that it is, quote-unquote, just a game. I disagree. If you have a different opinion, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. And comments are enabled at the website for inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.